Hey, this is Matt Walsh. Guess what, Improv Nerds? You're listening to Improv Nerd. That's Improv, bitch. Improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Hi, I'm Jimmy Corain, and this is a special, a very special episode of Improv Nerd. We won't have the performance element. We were lucky enough to interview Matt Walsh, a founding member of the Upright Citizens Brigade, and also director of his new uh, comedy improvised movie called High Road, and he'll also be starring in the new HBO series Veep. So please help me welcome Matt Walsh as he talks to us about the origin of UCB, directing High Road, and being on Veep. Um, Matt Walsh, thank you for doing this special episode of Improv Nerd. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I'm very excited to do it, and I always enjoy uh, chatting with you. I, I do too, and I, I always enjoyed performing with you years ago at the And NYS. I enjoyed performing with you. Yeah, sincerely. Great. great. You're very but, funny. Thank you. Jim so, Corain. Thank you. You're very funny. And so are you, Matt Walsh. Are you Walsh. still performing? Um, I'm doing this. Yeah? And occasionally I'll, I'll do performing. And do you perform in front of audiences anymore? Uh, no. No. Well, the last show we had, I think, 40 people. So the live okay. one. So I, I would count that as an audience. Okay. You? I've known you for a long time, but I didn't know your, like, your growing up and stuff. I know you came from a big Irish Catholic family. You yeah. grew up, you were, you were born on the south side, right? Grew up there for a while, then moved to Downers Grove. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, was, what was that like growing up? Uh, coming from a big family is really lovely. Uh, just memories of always having someone to play with, big vacations, uh, big brothers who might be able to calm you down if you're crying or maybe stick up for you if somebody's picking on you. Where were you in the birth families. order? I'm the middle child. I'm fourth of seven. Okay. So so what were you like? Were you a typical middle child? I think you could probably stereotype me as attention-seeking behavior was something uh, I definitely com- you know I definitely have, and I, I had to compete for attention probably being sandwiched in the middle. And how did you do that as a kid? Well, I couldn't. I'm not a real excellent athlete, and I'm not a real excellent student, but I'm sort of goofy or willing to be goofy, so I think... I was uh, a bit of a break from the mold from the rest of the family, so I just pursued arts in general or making people laugh. So, Were you the, the funny one in, in, in your family? No. My dad was funny. My dad's a salesman, and he loved to tell jokes and oh. laugh at his own jokes a lot. So he, he A was corny very sense fun- of humor? Kind of corny, but legit funny. Okay. But also the kind of guy that's cracking up by the end of the joke, and uh-huh. you still haven't gotten to the punchline. <laughs> right, right. Which I enjoy, actually. Uh-huh. Someone enjoying their joke is just Some as would good say as would, that would build the tension in the joke <laughs> for the punchline, did it? No. Okay. The journey was worth it. Uh-huh. The journey was worth it. And uh, so he was funny, and my brother Pat, who yeah, you know, know he's Pat. an improviser. He's very funny, and mm-hmm. he has done Chicago improv, and he does a little performing. He lives in L.A. Mm-hmm. now. And then that's pretty much the... Uh, my sisters are funny. Like, my mom's funny. She's funny in a, a blunt way. Like, I have a good story. When I was on The Daily Show, she just says without thinking, which is very Midwest, I think, mm-hmm. sometimes. And, uh, but they would, do it in a sweet way. In a sweet way. It's yeah. not a heckle or it's right. not rude. They're not being rude in their mind. And I was at the John Stewart Show, uh, Daily Show, and she came and saw a live show that when I was doing it. And Stewart came out and do his mo- did his monologue. And at some point, he did a joke that didn't work, and she turned to the person next to her and goes, oh, that was a bomb. 
<laughs> thinking like you're supposed to just say what you don't like. Right. And you could hear it kind of echo in the audience. I remember when you did that show, The Daily Show, that wasn't a good fit for you, was it? I was good in the field, uh -huh. and I was bad in the studio. Right. You know, they were nice, and everybody was supportive, but I never felt comfortable chasing the teleprompter and getting that news persona down. So. And it wasn't co as collaborative as you would think, right? No, they wrote for you. Yeah, definitely. You could pitch ideas, but there were producers who were kind of running the show. And I think John and the head writer had issues they wanted to wrap stories around. So if they were doing things about voting or the election, they would look for stories that fit that. You couldn't pitch a story that wasn't in their like vision. Was that a challenge for you because you had come from such a collaborative uh, Yeah, I think so. I think I might have had an ego about my own writing skills or my, an ego about my own uh, individualism. Because on UCB, we got to write and produce and edit everything. So it was uh, a change in direction for me. So yeah, it was the first gig out of UCB was The Daily Show. So I think I probably had a harder time with it than most. Because yeah, I, I would have just been at the point where I was like, look, we've been on for three years on Comedy Central. You're just going to you're just gonna let me do what I want to do. <laughs> you know? I didn't have that kind of, because uh, it is John's show, ultimately. Right. His oh. name's on it. But yeah, I think I probably had a hard time with that. And, uh, and it was 9-11, too. That was a weird year. I was there during the uh, World Trade disaster, and uh, that was also part of it. It was a funky year for me to be, because it was very depressing to be in New York after that, and uh, probably smoking more pot than I should have at the time. Now, you say this, yeah. you, th that you smoke but, but at the annoyance, you never smoked pot. No, I wasn't Did really. Besser turn you on? <laughs> no, I turned myself on to it. Okay. I think, I think you know, Chicago's a drinking town, and I'd say New York is like 50-50. 50% 50 drinkers and 50% stoners. If you it's will. actually, got, since you've been here, I think it's more like 70-30. Pot. Pot. Pot's more dominant than yeah. drinking in Chicago? That was Besser's influence. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or in the improv community? In the improv community. Really? Yeah. That is a change. Yeah. Because it was straight up beer in my day. The thing that I always amazed me about Besser was when we would do Armando Diaz. By the way, I never smoked as much as Besser. <laughs> okay, great. Very few people could We say would that. do a show, and that guy... You wouldn't even get off stage, and there'd be a pipe in his mouth, and there'd be six other people around him. But the thing was, he was so driven. How did he balance both of those things? You'll have to ask him. Okay. I mean... Did that ever... Were you ever curious about that? How did he balance being driven and a stoner? Is yes. that an unlikely characteristic yes, for a stoner? Yes, it is. I guess a stoner in the stereotype way is like disorganized and chill uh -huh. all the time. But there are stoners like Matt, I'm sure, that probably use it to take that edge off. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, use pot, you know, in the same way that drinking kind of like gets you to go to sleep a little quicker or takes the nerves off. Do you use it in that? How do you use pot? I don't really use it anymore, to okay. be candid. Yeah, uh -huh. I have three kids now, uh -huh. and it's just harder to, I mean, God forbid you have some altered state when an emergency happens with the children. So there's that. And there's also just no time. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really somebody who... Uh, partakes anymore. Can you tell us about how the UCB formed here in Chicago before they go off to New York? Uh, UCB started in the early 90s. It was kind of like me, McKay, Horatio. Adam McKay, who directs Anchorman and all. I thought you people knew. I thought you said this audience knew. <laughs> That's just my public radio. Okay, keep uh, it going. Uh, yeah, you know, keep you it chime going. in. I'm okay, sorry. Great. You've done this before. Right. Uh, McKay, Horatio, Ian, Horatio myself. Sands from SNL. Ian, Ian Roberts from UCB. Ian Peel. Yeah. Was the head writer? Uh -huh. uh, Horatio Sands, McKay, myself, Matt Besser. And, uh, but you weren't in the original incarnation here. Yeah, I was. You were? Yeah. So how did it boil down to just the four of you? Uh, over the years, uh, people 
came in and out like Fulcher would do shows and Rich Fulcher was in your in, in High Road I, and also Party, in Mighty Bush yeah and Mighty Bush uh-huh. uh, Neil Flynn mm-hmm. came through Ali uh, so there's a lot of people and then in 94 uh, I think at the time McKay probably went to main stage and so uh, it was me Amy because yeah it was turned into me Amy Matt and Ian for whatever reason and what people said here when you guys left was and then when you became successful in New York, it was like, Matt Besser had the drive for the group. And I heard Amy had spoken on Mark Maron's WTF, yeah. the same thing. What was that drive that Besser, I mean, what credit would you give him for, for getting you guys out there? I think he was the most focused of the four of us, definitely. He had uh, a vision. He literally did all the tech. You know, he shot the videos. He pushed, you know, he constantly pushed to get showcases for us. He was the the most probably business uh, ambitious in some ways. I mean, we all wanted success, but I think he definitely carried that, the stress of success more than anyone for us. Did you grow into to, to your drive and to your focus? Because I remember like at the annoyance, none of us were really focused. Right. I, did, did you? I guess so. I, I guess I, as I got older, I realized the things I wanted and probably, I think part of ambition is admitting it's okay to be ambitious. I think when you come to Chicago... People don't like ambitious people. Not or, at all. Right? They rub you the wrong way. Yeah. Or it's like, just have a beer and relax. Right. And there's something there's something uh, slightly dishonest if you're not admitting it. And I think, truthfully, I've probably always been ambitious or have had ambition to be successful as, in entertainment. So I think as I got older, I just became more focused. And there's only so much socializing that you do. After a while, you just want to work and, and make things so you think when you got to New York, you kind of grew up in a way? Well, New York was, eh, that's probably a good point. I think so, yeah, because in New York, it was definitely a move for work. And in here, it still felt like shows and friends. And even though UCB became focused in like 94, and I'd been working, it started touring at Second City in 94. So I had been, that was like the first time I could quit. I was working for my dad's business at the time. And when I got Taft Construction. Taft Construction and Cicero no longer in business. <laughs> uh, went bankrupt a few years ago. Um, when I got a gig in 94 with the touring company, it was such a relief because I could quit my dad's job or business and uh, just do comedy and get paid. And it was like the last time I had to have a real job, knock on wood. Was that a tough move to go? Because you, you were in the touring company. UCB, I don't think people realize, kind of didn't get great reviews here. Didn't no. get great, great attention. And But, you know, if you, you stuck it out at the Second City... You could have made probably made a stage very easily. Then Besser and and, and says, "Hey, let's go to New York." And yeah. Plus, you're from here, and you yeah. you, you love this city. I was do that, love Chicago. Was that a tough move? Was that a tough decision for you? Yes and no. I mean, the the decision to go to New York and L.A. or L.A. was all of ours. You know, the mm-hmm. four of us sat down at some diner, like the Salt and Pepper Diner, and kind of hashed it out. Like we had been to New York for a showcase or two. We'd been to L.A. for a showcase. And we had a sense of what each town, and we knew we had to go to New York or LA to get attention from a, a network or a producer that could somehow get us on television. And so we decided New York would be best to cultivate a following. New York's more of a theater town, and LA is more of a showcase town. You pop into town in LA and you do a showcase, and then you're gone for a month and you come back. And the other rumor I had heard was yeah. Besser said, We're not going to LA because they're going to cherry pick our talent. 
That's not true at all. It's not true at all? It's not true at all. Okay, no. the other thing I heard was no. he had a club sandwich at the Salt and Pepper Diner and not a hamburger. I'm going to say soup. Okay. I'm going to say soup, and Amy might have had the club, or she might have split the club, and Ian probably had a Tupperware thing of chicken breasts and cottage cheese. Right, and, and some super green algae back then. He might have had that. Right. He might have had that. And he had to go work out. After, yeah. Yeah. And I probably had way too many calories. I was, uh, I was much heavier back then. So the UCB style, a lot of... Um, it's this, you know, find the game in the scene, writing on your feet. When did you guys say in New York, wow, we've got our own style and we have our own method? When did you d- discover that? Because it wasn't, it, you weren't like that, UCB wasn't like that when they were here. No. I think the evolution began in New York. When we got to New York, there was so, we, did, we started ASCAP, which was a free improv mm-hmm. show, as, as a way to get an audience. And it just exploded. Like, people... We're doing short form in New York, but nobody's doing long form like we've done with Dell and the Armando mm-hmm. here. Del Close, yeah. Del Close. And, uh, but nobody really was doing it, so that was like fortunate for us to like bring this thing. That wasn't ours, but we learned and studied. And mm-hmm. So we started doing long form, and then people were so interested, because um, in New York there was only like Chicago City Limits and other things, very traditional short form. And they wanted to take classes, so to start taking classes, I, the first like document was created by Ian. I remember Ian created like a document of like how to do um, you know scene work, improvised scene work, and then from that, I think we sort of worked off of that, and we all taught our own take on it. Like I probably have a more annoyance background in some ways, but we all went through I/O, and all this, all the tenants that are consistent, like listening and agreement, and uh, you know, treating your partner well, and uh, playing to the top of your intelligence. We probably codified those things over the course of you know once we started in teaching in '96 class here, a class there, the four of us, by, we, we got a theater in 98, and I think once we had a theater, we started to really write curriculum over the course of, you know, eight or ten years. Each year we would update the curriculum and make it more codified, and I think that's where the game probably came from, but I think the game may have literally come from Ian's first document, quite frankly. I don't know that Ian came up with the concept, but Ian's, Ian is excellent at breaking down a scene, telling you why it doesn't work, showing you where the choices failed and where choices could have succeeded and I think his sort of you know succinct mind uh, on that couple pieces of paper was the foundation for which we all sort of improvised off of so so that then influences not only how you teach but how you guys were performing in New York no I think the performing had its own style there was we never had rehearsals to perform we never we just did what we thought was funny and I think probably you know the family was a big influence for Matt and Ian and family they, was at I.O. The family was a group at I.O. Right. with all those guys. And then... Um, and they were very game-orientated back then. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if you watched Adam McKay, I wouldn't say Adam McKay was a, a great actor by any stretch no. of the match. And he'd probably agree, too. Yeah. But his his mind Brilliant. was in, was incredible. Brilliant writer. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I think, like, the, the family style and the movie, specifically, those... those Which was an improvised movie. Yeah. The, the use of... Uh, Description and the, and the fast-paced tag-out. I think that was sort of the revolution, which might trace its roots back to things like Jazz Freddy or other groups. I couldn't really mm-hmm. do the family tree, but in terms of how the family, Matt and Ian's experience with that, even the Armando, I, I noticed, started to get a little faster when I was doing the Armando, and I think I learned to improvise inside the Armando. Like, I did, I'd done Screw Puppies, which was very forgiving and long, and mm-hmm. more about, like, just exploration, not really pace and not really locking into a game. It was, But it was funny... 
but it was more in the absurd realm, I think. I don't think Screw Puppies ever tried to rein in a concept. Mm-hmm. And, I, I'm wondering how much the city, because I remember somebody had said something, uh, Kevin Dorff had said something to somebody like, it's not going to play in New York. You like you have to. There's a different style in New York, and I'm wondering how much of that city, that fast pace, their culture, uh, they're kind of more in your face, reflected what you guys were doing, influenced it. I don't know if it influenced. I mean, I can't say if it influenced or not. Like, I we had a style when we hit the stage in New York doing mm-hmm. ASCAP. It was fast paced. There's mm-hmm. a lot of cuts, movie technique, uh, idea. Best idea always wins out. A lot of premises coming into scenes with premises and forgetting the discovery moment mm-hmm. of like. No idea, no idea, explore, 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 aha, something unusual, okay, and then a pattern emerges, and then we have a game. No, source material, monologue, or whatever, opening, if you mm-hmm. would, if it was a herald, and then coming out of that source material, premise, mm-hmm. hit, hit the road. Here's my idea for what could be a funny sketch improvisationally. Mm-hmm. So we've always had that, I think, or at least when we hit New York, it was pretty much there. Maybe it became solidified, because we did that show you know, every Sunday night for years in New York in a terrible little theater on the fifth floor in, in Chelsea. And uh, and I think, again, you know, Matt and Ian, I think Matt and Ian probably had a, a stronger premise-based initiation pattern coming mm-hmm. out of uh, the family. So I probably copped some of that from them, just playing with them. But I think the style was pretty fast and the, the technique, the swipe edits, those were all there. It was all in place before we came to New York. And then, it, then, then your school explodes, yeah. okay, the UCB, and then other schools, people defect, uh, yeah. Ali Faranakian, yeah. Armando Diaz, they yeah. do Magnet, they do Pitt. Um, you were friends with these guys. We were all, yes. you know, um, how, do you, how, how, do you, how do you feel about that? How do I feel about them breaking away? Yeah. God bless. Mm-hmm. Start a business, make your uh, make your bones in improv. I don't keep in touch with Ali, but I sort of keep in touch with Armando. Mm-hmm. But I think they're both doing well, and it's a big city. And UCB in New York has thousands of students every year, and so there there is room for other theaters. You know. One time I heard that you couldn't you you, you, you if you teach at UCB you can't teach at the other theaters. Was that true? Uh, I think that is still true. Yeah, we uh-huh. want we want uh, because we have a curriculum mm-hmm. and we have a training um, to and we have like we offer uh, as you know like people like Noah are a draw. Noah Gregoropoulos. Noah yeah. Gregoropoulos, or I don't know who the great teachers are at IO, but there is a there is there's the curriculum, but there's also the people that come up through the program that attract students. So I think there is value in like having unique teachers in your program. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's people who teach at like Columbia out there, like our teachers who teach at colleges around the city or do like independent things. But to have like a competing theater that you can get, you know, Noah here or you can get Armando here, you know, it's the same thing. Like Armando doesn't teach anywhere else, but his theater, it makes sense. Did you it ever? Makes it. Did you ever think you'd be thinking like this as a businessman? Yes. No, never, never. But it just blossomed. It grew. Like I think we have. 5,000 students a year coming out of New York. What I'm amazed is, who's the... How, first of all, how involved are you in the, uh, both theaters in New York and L.A.? This is the boring part. We're talking okay. about business yeah. business models. Yeah. If you're uh, at home, this would be a great time to put in a frozen pizza. Yeah, or get high. Or get roll, high. Roll, roll yeah. a, I a, encourage a you. Do you get high? No, I don't. Did you high. ever? No, I did a long time ago, but yeah. I don't drink and I don't smoke. Yeah. You're sober. Yes. As a choice. Yeah. Drinking didn't work for you, but you were never somebody who enjoyed marijuana. No, it just made me t- it made me tired, and I figured I could do that on my own. I yeah. don't need to pay money and 
yeah, do that something illegal. Yeah. Um, so the business model question was what? My thing is, uh, it's become such a brand now, UCB. Yeah. And who is driving it oh. business-wise? Like okay. who, I mean... Uh, the way the business works is there are emails that go out to the four of us, the four mm -hmm. founders, Matt, Ian, Amy, and myself. And then... You, uh, don't, you don't meet face-to-face -face anymore. You can't. Okay. Because Ian lives way outside of L.A. And Bessel lives kind of close to me in L.A. And Amy's in New York most of the right. time. So it's just impossible. So any big issue that comes up or we're changing the curriculum or we're going to buy a theater and you know, uh, East Lower East Side, anything important or even monthly updates from the artistic director, the touring company director. And then we have a guy in New York named Alex Sittis who runs kind of the whole business, but the New York branch. And then we have a woman in uh, LA named Susan Hale who used to work here at Second City. Okay. Uh, she runs the LA business. And if they have big issues or things, then, then the emails start. And then Alex and Susan would be CC'd on every important email. And then we just weigh in the opinion. And I think the best kind of rule we have is that it has to be unanimous. It's like if one person vetoes anything, if it's like we want to buy two buildings and I said no or Ian says no, then we can't do it. It has to be the four of us have to agree, which is great because you know it's unanimous. Like you have to, you know, if somebody really has a strong objection, then you have to like visit that and we have to figure it out. Like what are the problems with that? Why do we, you know, it's not majority, it's like unanimous. Um, with everyone's busy schedule, is it hard to coordinate stuff? Yeah, it is. It is difficult. I mean, sometimes people don't get back on emails sometimes or uh, if there's a walkthrough of like this building in New York or whatever, then it is difficult. You just have to like, if I can't do it, I'm fine with, you know, if Amy sees the building in New York and she likes it and she says, guys, it's good, I'll take her opinion and say, sure. Uh, let's talk about your, your film, Pyro. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, this movie is about a guy, Fitz, and he, the band is breaking up, but he really, uh, explain it, he really isn't coming to terms with it. He's yes. having a hard time. It's about loss, wouldn't you say? Yeah, he's the last guy in the band, almost like an improv team, if you will, that's holding on to the dream, and everybody's, yeah, it didn't quite work out. Let's, I'm going to go hang out with my girlfriend, and the other guy goes into the straight business world, which you've seen a million times on improv teams. Right. Yeah. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, I've gotten kicked off of improv teams, but it wasn't... Uh, I didn't quit improv, but I've had small losses along the way, sure, like weird, uh, you know, not being included in something along the way at a theater, you know, like if there's a show that, at the Annoyance and we didn't get cast, mm -hmm. there's a bit of loss there, I guess, so I can sort of relate to that. But you didn't go out and sell weed because no, of No, I didn't. I never quit doing improv, but I think a band, in, in, the, in the fiction of that story, which isn't in the movie, it's a guy that had his mother died. And none of this is in the movie, but this is the story. It's a guy, he was in a band and his mother died and his dad wigged out. And so he basically was raised by these two buddies. And, the, and they made a band when they were like 16 or 17. And they played together all the time and they sort of raised each other. So it was beyond a band, it was like a family. And then when they reached, reached 25 or whatever and they realized like it's not working out. And I, I'm actually happier making music with my girlfriend and I'm actually happier working in the business world. To him, it's like a loss. It's like the family's breaking up. And it's like the second time, because when his mother died was the first time, and now the band breaking up is like another loss. Do you remember when it was like, okay, the four of you, the UCB, you, we're not going to perform together? Do you remember that? Like at the end of the, was it the end of the TV show? Yeah, I think the end of the TV show happened, uh, whatever, 2000 or 2001, whatever year it was, and there was no 
UCB, at the time we'd all agreed every six months, like we're not going to take outside work that we'll pull away from the TV show, obviously, because we were working together. And then when the TV show was over, there was no real uh, creative obligation. Before. Other than the theater, we still did ASCAP together and we still, you know, would weigh in on issues at the theater, but there was no, uh, there was no job for the Upright City. There was no movie coming up. There was no TV show coming up. Um, so... Did you we, have a talk and like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go our separate ways? No, not at all. It okay. was just like, uh, if somebody had a project, sure, go ahead and pitch it for the, I'll do it. And then I think I first got hired for the Daily Show after that in 2000 or 2001. And then uh, Amy after that in 2001 or 2002 got hired on SNL. And so it just sort of happened. You know, it just sort of, uh, I don't know that it was the end of the band. I think it was more like after we stopped filming season three, that was the end of the band because mm -hmm. there was no real, uh, like I said, job or obligation to have us get together at six in the morning, get in a, and get in a 15 passenger van and go film something. It was gone. Um, you also said, how did you, who, you based this on uh, Fitz's character on somebody that you had studied with at the Annoyance? And uh, he's not an Annoyance guy, but he's a guy from Chicago. I won't say his name. Do I know him? Yeah, you do know him. You're kidding me because you, it's a successful New York writer and I'm like, I've been Where did writing, I say that? You, you said that in, I believe, uh, The Onion. Oh, I did. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. He's uh, Tommy. You remember Tommy? Don't say his last name. I won't say his okay. last name. He you was a guy. He was a part-time pot dealer in Chicago for a while. Okay. And so he was a friend of mine who's super funny and super talented. And, I, and that's basically it. Like, he's gone on and done great things and he's doing well. But it was an interesting life because I always thought that's a dangerous choice for a creative person. Like, to to mire themselves in a legal endeavor when they should be pursuing something else. And I think at the time it was just easy money and interesting. And had he stayed with that, he wouldn't have become, you know, the interesting, awesome person that he is. Right. And there's a story, I'm not going to give any details more than this, but uh, he was working in a liquor store and then like a week later he's working at a major network yeah. uh, late night talk show. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. And it's to me, and, it's, and that's where the... Uh, Comparison ends. It's the movie is not about him, but it's it's you know he's he's a good friend, fascinating guy, and so that was I wrote it with a friend of mine, Josh Weiner, and so the beginning of the movie was definitely his vibe. Yeah, is I would imagine uh, looking at Josh Weiner's younger. Yeah, can you? Ma I mean, I looked at this movie and I said, this is a, I love the movie by the way. Thank you. And I'm like, do, today, do you have to make a movie that's about younger people to get it made? Yeah, there's probably some truth to that. I mean, the story was written for uh, someone younger. Like, we'd written it five years ago, maybe six years ago. And I think in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, maybe I'll play Fitz, you know? Mm -hmm. But as I got older, it's it's sad. If you're playing like a 40-year-old part-time weed dealer, it's a whole different story. Right. It's, it's all borders on creep. Yeah, exactly. And then sad. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a forgivable offense if you're 25 and you're trying to figure stuff out and your band just broke up. Then it's like kind of endearing, right? It's like oh he'll he'll get it together. But if it's like forty, it's like no man, that's not cool, right? Like suicides the next, yeah, 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 be the natural thing. Now, how much planning went into improvising a movie? So it was a screenplay of one hundred and ten twenty pages, and it was a movie that was probably never going to get made because we sent it out and nobody was interested. So I decided I had a month off in July two summers ago, and I said I'm going to make it for no money, and we're going to make it improv style. So we took the story and boiled it down to like 65 or 70 scenes and each scene heading if it says uh fits at liquor store 
we knew that he had to sell a lot of weed. We knew he had to almost get caught or create tension with the liquor store owner. And then uh, we knew that when he, the guy runs out of the liquor store that the cops would be there. And that would set him on the road because he thinks the cops are after him. But then you do a rehearsal process. And then we spent, so that was the outline. And then we spent two weeks at the UCB Theater in L.A. where I had mostly my main characters over there, Fitz and the boy uh, Jimmy, uh, improvising every day and doing scenes that would never be in the movie. Just shared character history, like having the band talk about, like I said, the story is like they met when they were 16 and they became brothers and talk about you know, Fitz sleeping over at Tommy's house and how cool his parents were and he wished he had parents like that. Like all this nonsense that had nothing to do with what we were going to be filming, but solidified and created a communal history between the bandmates. So if they were improvising and Fitz referenced a fictional album they made when they were 21, they would know exactly what he was talking about. Or if there was ever any question about their history or what they meant to each other, they knew it and they felt it. So it was kind of building and recording uh, a group history and also a little bit of the style like the tone I was looking for like just just so they understood like I was really trying to get it pretty real and um, and also I think there was a couple people really only one this kid Jimmy who's played by Dylan O'Brien he'd never improvised before in his life he was like 18 when we started filming so I had him take a two week intensive at UCB and I had him like kind of in the room all the time because he was stepping in to the room with people like, you know, anyone from Mike Coleman to Rob Riggle, these people that can just run with the ball. So it was good for him to play catch-up in those two weeks. It's interesting you had him do it at UCB, because yeah. my, uh, how did you meld the, UC, you know, the, the game of the scene UCB with this, this is a very realistic comedy. Yeah. How, do, how did you meld those two together? I think going, looking at the outline, you just wanted to make sure that each scene had a funny premise or sort of game for the characters to play to generate comedy. So And it doesn't even have to be a strong game. No, 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 exactly. Because the, the lines they create around that game can be funny. Mm -hmm. So like if he's in the liquor store, for example, there's a scene where Fitz decides the place he's going to do this ginormous bag of weed deal at uh, is in a liquor store, which is a public place. And he brings Joe Nunez around the back aisle. And he's like, shh. And the game is like Fitz being terrible at being quiet. Like he's constantly saying, yeah, yeah, we're just here to get some wine for your sister's quinceria or whatever. And so that's the game they're basically playing, like an awkward weed deal. And also the game that Fitz is constantly playing through, through many scenes is like, you know, we should hang out more. You know, let's not have this just be a business relationship. You know, let's go play PX3 or whatever. So that's another, that's like a character game, if you will, that he brings through every scene. The other thing I liked about this movie, and I, and it's one of my biggest criticisms about comedies today, is people don't spend, directors don't spend enough time on the, the, the day player. The guy who's coming in, like Joe Nunez's part, like your wife's part, who, who play, uh, uh, Morgan, who plays this wonderful hooker, at, at, it's a hilarious scene. Mike Coleman, who plays the, the, the bouncer. How... And they don't spend enough time on those characters. They just think, uh, you know what, say the lines and go. But all of these characters in your film, you, it's almost like you wanted to follow them. They were so interesting. Yeah. How did you get that? How did you accomplish that? Well, I accomplished it, one, because I know a lot of funny people. So I was fortunate enough to cast everyone with a phone call and saying, we're doing this movie for 12 days and no money, basically. Would you do it? So that was the first part. And I was fortunate enough to cast like the funniest people. Like even Ed Helms, who's a star now, was like, yeah, I'll do it. And... That's a real solid for someone to do that, just to decide I want to do this for fun and be with friends and Joe LaTrulio. So um, people who came in for a day, like a Mike Coleman, like he's really funny, so it doesn't make sense not to use him. So to make him 
uh, be the bouncer, and uh, his game, if you will, or the tension of the scene is to harass Fitz about what's he doing with an eight-year-old or sixteen-year-old kid, like just to give Fitz a hard time, basically. And Mike's great at that, so to not have him bring his skills or let him run with it would be silly. But he does it in a very subtle way. Very realistic. But really realistic. Yeah, and, and everybody's but everybody's playing the same world. Like that's what the rehearsal kind of gave us. Like I don't know that Mike ever had to come in for rehearsal. He may have, but I don't think he did. Um, but certain characters, obviously. But everybody was playing in the same world, and he's reacting to Dylan and James, who have been there every day, and they're giving him a very real, you know, world too. So it just everything fell into sync. And in a lot of your press, they, they you know they they talk about you've done like. Six of Todd Phillips's films, is yeah. that right? Yeah. And you, you know, you didn't do the the the, the last one because you held out for more money. <laughs> uh, but they're comparing. Sure. They're, they're saying, you know, you know, what did you learn from him? I really think this movie was more had more of a tone and more of a feel than a movie that I loved that was really underrated that you were in called Cyrus. Oh yeah. And they improvised on that, right? Yes. What did a, you learn from the, it was two brothers who did it. Yeah, that's a It's a great film. It's a great movie. Thank you. I did learn from them too. That's it's the Duplass brothers and they're sort of uh indie guys who have done really well at Sundance and have created a wonderful career and they do uh a similar thing but they have a full script and you're on set with, you know, sides for the day and there's dialogue there, but inevitably they always say, "Okay, now just do it. Put the script away." Just do it, say it, how you want to say it. And they're really wonderful. They're wonderful at many things. Like, they are they capture things really well. One of the guys, Jay, is actually one of the cinematographers. So they have a very good visual style. But they're also good at creating really awkward, real moments. Like, that, that just feel that pull you in. They're really good at creating these awkward moments. And then when they relieve them, it's always funny. And so they're, they have a very unique style. And they're great. Yeah, they're great. And that's what I that's what your movie to, oh, to me was accomplishing. That's a great compliment and I'll take that cuz that's a great movie and they're great filmmakers. So you've done this rehearsal you show up on set how do you get a how how does Matt Walsh get a great performance out of somebody you know uh, an improvised actor? Well the simplest thing is you do it again until you get it. You just okay. do it again and again. But we the the formula was basically um, you know, talking about the scene, doing a rehearsal with, without camera, blocking it a little bit, having the crew watch it, just like a regular movie, and then uh, kind of shooting wide, you know, so we can kind of hit our feet. And then once we hit it, the actors sort of had the rhythm down. There wasn't, let's improvise a ton of stuff each take. It was That wasn't the goal. It's like, let's improvise what you would say in this moment, and then if you feel like that's it, recreate it and add to it if you want, but don't feel, if you have a funny joke in your greeting to... Jimmy and Fitz when they walk up to the uh, bouncer, Mike Coleman, and he says, uh, they come in packs of 20, uh, get them at the store, that's what I did. I don't need him to create another one, like that's gold. Like So in multiple takes, Mike may have said that. Like each take when they come in, he might have said that. But one, it's once we find him, like great, keep that. Don't do that, find something else. Like I would be off camera looking at the monitor, like that's a great line, don't forget that. Try something different, or this feels awkward, or it's just not working yet. You know, those are my, that's my duties, to sort of pull moments out that are failing and, and put put in things that are uh, better, hopefully. Now, when we started out, if you would have said, I'm going to improvise a movie or I'm going to improvise a TV show, people would say, you're crazy. And certainly out in L.A., in New York, they there, was no, there wasn't there was the same amount of respect as it is today. What what do you think has changed that, that people are more uh, open to it? And, and people are doing a good job of it, too, I think. 
I think the technology is probably the most helpful thing about making improvised film these days. Well, one, because it, it is a thing now, like dating back to Spinal Tap, for example, an improvised doc mockumentary, but an improvised comedy that borrowed a, you know, a genre, a documentary style, and Christopher Guest has taken that lead. I think there is a, uh, a genre that people, when they sit down or whatever, or they know, they know about it now. It's not like, what the hell am I watching? It's like, no, they know there are things like that. And I think the technology, like, you know, lightweight digital cameras and being able to get away with, you know, one or two lighting guys as opposed to, you know, 20, you know, I think that helps a lot. And, uh, and I guess experience just being around it, like, I, you've probably done the same. A lot of people in Chicago have made improvised movies that I've been in, or in New York I've stepped into some, or even movies like Cyrus. And even people like, you know, McKay, Adam McKay or Judd Apatow, I always say, they're very improv friendly. They know when something's even, and Todd Phillips absolutely is. You know, they know when something's not working, and they're like, "Say this, say that," or like, "What, what would you do?" Go ahead, free take. Like, they know the value of that because you have Will Ferrell in a movie, and it'd be silly not to give him a couple free takes because he's so funny. Or, or just say, "Say this, Will," and then have him riff off of that. You know, so even established establishment directors in the comedy world, like Judd and Adam, have been talking about the value of improv for a long time. So. I think that's all the momentum of all those things I've mentioned have sort of created this time where I think it's, you know, in the vein of normal to try to attempt one. And now you're on HBO's VP? Yep, Veep. Uh, Veep? Veep. V-E-E-P. Okay. Veep. Um, and you play pr the press secretary the to, press. The, to the vice president, yeah. who is a female vice president, Julia yes. Louis-Dreyfus. Yes. Um, what is the difference between improvising on that show and an improvised movie much more written in veep they uh sort of uh annoyance style if you will because i learned a lot you know annoyance when jimmy and i for those guys who don't know jimmy was a big staple at the annoyance back in the day and we would do these plays where we would you know spend six weeks improvising and then go on stage and try characters together and then all of a sudden a funny thing would happen and then a relationship would form and you keep the things that were interesting and you throw out the others. And so. we never wrote it down. I mean, it was a whole Well, time. somebody did. But later I feel like that did. was the director's job. He would sit... Right. He would sit and like keep that or... You know. but, but I remember times where people would go, like, I got to understudy for you. Where's the tape? Because was, there was only a videotape. Oh, yeah. yeah and it was oh, the actual tape. script. Right. No. no, there was no actual no. script. No. no. No, and then you'd have to go upstairs. Mick lived up in this... What was it? It was like a... A loft? It was like a loft, but yeah. it was almost like a ski lodge. Yeah, it was an A-frame... Ski yeah. lodge. Yeah. And you'd go up there and, you know, hope... <laughs> Hope to find the. Hope what to else find would what would it be under, buried under? under? Yeah. What would it be buried under? I, who knows? Okay. Who knows? Um, so so Veep is um, Brits. Uh, this guy Armando Iannucci, who created uh, directed a movie called In the Loop, and a show called The Thick of It, and, and Alan, Alan Partridge, which is a great brilliant, subtle, brilliant, brilliant comedian. And so he has tremendous mind for comedy, and they had a script and then we went to England for two weeks and we sort of rehearsed the script or several of the scripts uh, for the first season and we would put them on their feet and put the scripts down and then we would improvise things and there was a wall of like five or six writers listening and kind of understanding our uh, Americanisms as well as like our point of view of that character you know what I mean so we once we embodied the characters like oh so that's how Mike McClintock is they may have seen him one way and then once you see the guy in the role, they had the opportunity to see us in rehearsal. And then they would start writing things for Matt Walsh or, you know, uh, Tim Simons, because they're funnier in different ways than you may have seen on the page. 
So we did that for two weeks, putting, picking up scripts and working them, et, et cetera. And then they would, writers would go away and make a, a beautiful draft. And so it was much more written than High, High Road was just an outline. Like we had beautiful scripts uh, every day. Like they did, and they never stopped writing. They did, you know, 10 drafts of each script before we actually started shooting. And then on the day of filming, Armando always allows you to, you know, say, let's just uh, loosen this one up or, you know, go ahead and have fun. But keep it moving, keep the pace. You know, he's very polite and sweet. And so those are the moments where you can really just improvise again. But you're, you're encouraged to improvise, but you kind of don't have to for most of it because it's really brilliantly written. It's, it's you know, we, we're fortunate to have excellent scripts. I, and I think improvising on screen is much, is a skill in itself. And you're, wouldn't you agree that you're, you're improvising in a, a, a parameter of something? You're, you're not going there just to riff. Yeah. And, and you have to know what the scene is about and what the story is and stuff yes. like that. Yes. And I think it's really important for people to realize that you, yeah. you're not going to just go up there and be funny. You have yeah. to know what your function is and what your point of view is. Yes, I think that's another thing that the rehearsal taught us is you want to improvise on story because it's not useful if you're improvising away from the story. It just it won't end up in the edit. So you could riff and you could be really funny, but it's not useful. And there's only 85 minutes for us to make this movie. And so I think the rehearsal kind of showed you, oh, try to improvise on story. Try to improvise around the world. That's helpful and that's useful. Um, you're a very, very successful Thank character you. actor. Thank do you, you feel that? Do I feel it? Now yeah. I do. I've never felt it until... Right now? Until right now. I don't know. Is it, sure. Is it a break, breakthrough? <laughs> That's what I'm this podcast is known for. Am I like M. Emmett, M. Emmett Walsh? Or, uh, who's, the, who's the most successful character actor? Like, who do you love to see in a movie? Who do I love to see? Like, I, character world. Like, that guy's awesome. Like, Joe Pantoleone. Is, a, is he a character actor? Um, Joey Pants? He's, Joey? he's like a real actor, maybe. He was on The Sopranos. I'm trying to think of, like, the consummate character. The guy that... Ben, our producer, do you have any ideas of character actors? Walter Brennan? I'm seeing faces, but names that don't... That are, I'm not attached. Okay. Okay, but so I mean, I'm a nameless actor <laughs> that's successful. All right, I'll take that. Okay, uh, <laughs> that, that's what I was going for. I'm glad we're... Um, and you, you've created so many things. I mean, going back from Martin and Orloff to Players on Spike TV, Dog yeah. Beats Man and Comedy Central, do you think to be successful you have to create your own work versus the character actor who sits out in L.A. and is just waiting for that phone to ring? Yeah, I think that's solid advice. I think especially now... Like I said, with technology or YouTube, I mean, there's no reason. It's always better to just say, let's do it, than to wait for someone to give you permission to do it. It's just always better. And I think Chicago is a very good example of why people come to Chicago is because they can do their own theater. They can do their own things. And it's not financially forbidding. It's like rentals, are, you know, theater rentals are relatively cheap. Rents to live in an apartment are relatively cheap. So you should be creating your own theater company or creating your own short films or creating your own movies or putting up your own sketch shows like there's no reason not to and that's what you're here for is like I want to do work like just do the work I know you know Keckner was always like just do the work like he was a big Dave Keckner yeah, yeah. Dave Keckner was a big you know supporter of mine because he was sort of a senior uh -huh. when I was a freshman in the improv world and he was very like just do the work and I think that is a great mentality that Chicago had and I hope still does and and I think that's great advice for anybody who goes out to LA with you know stars in their eyes thinking it's going to happen like it could happen like you could just be the guy and you look right and there's a market for that look or the, that that delivery you have or whatever it is or but you're better off and especially now with YouTube a lot of people have been fortunate enough who have never had stage experience um, 
don't really know how to like work an audience, but have made videos in their room and they know how to market and they know how to edit and they have five million viewers and they can get they get deals at Comedy Central to make a pilot. So that's kind of doing it yourself in a very you're kind of leapfrogging like as you know in sec in the second city here, uh, Chicago. You have to get in line a lot. Like if you're here at the, at the theater, you're gonna have to wait for touring company to open, and you're gonna have to wait for ETC to open, and you're gonna have to wait for uh, main stage to open. So you're kind of in line for that. Even at I/O, if there's a Friday night slot and that team is awesome, you gotta wait till that team goes away. Well, why not make something yourself and just leapfrog everything and say, well, what I really want is I want a TV show, or what I really want is to make movies. Well, then make that thing. Matt Walsh. Thank you so much for being our guest. Did I talk too much? No, this was oh. awesome. Oh, good. good, good this good, is good. awesome. So, uh, um, the movie is uh, High Road. High Road. It's on Blu-ray and DVD and video on demand. And so, check that out. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Veep. Veep. Why didn't they just call it VP? Because uh, I think in Washington, they call that person the Veep. Like, okay. Joe Biden is the Veep. Okay. So that's like a insider word. And when is that that when is that coming out on That April? comes out April twenty second. Okay. So look nights. for that Sunday night. But Sunday night is the night now for television, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And we're with a show called Girls, which is really funny, I think. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, I think Veep will be really, really funny. I One thing I forgot to ask yeah. you and I wanna you always we've known each other from the annoyance and there was weird stuff, believe me. Not was, with me and you. No, not with me and you. But I mean in the theater, right? Wouldn't you say? At the annoyance? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, but you always stayed above it. You always had such a positive outlook. Really? Yes. Thank you. Where did you develop that? <laughs> I think uh, middle child syndrome, like avoid conflict or something. I don't know. I, uh, I guess I like to avoid confrontation probably. That's not the best thing in the world sometimes, but that might be how does part that of it. Work, how does that work as being a director? Well, director doesn't matter because you have this position where you have to make decisions. Like right. if you're in a, a milieu of 30 people um, and there's no clear leader, then just go along to get along perhaps. I don't know. Like, I don't, that's not my take on it. But I, Your I like take on what? That I was so easygoing what, and nice all the time. What was your take on it? I'm sure I had bad days where I was sort of insufferable or short or weird or something. I'm sure I had those days. I'm just, just, just saying my experience. Yeah, your experience. You, you were very, always very well liked. You, people had affection for you. The wall, she this, wall, she yeah. that. I mean, you were, you know. Well, I guess fortunately, finding something you love to do and and appreciating that. I always loved doing theater. And when I started doing the annoyance, I couldn't. You know, nobody was getting paid, but we were we were doing really funny like parody musicals, and nothing brought me more joy than to get on stage and be able to do that because I had no experience in college doing theater. So like. To me, it was like, oh my God, I'm on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I was on Broadway for you three were years. Broadway and Belmont. Broadway and yeah. Belmont. Yeah. So nothing brought me more joy than like that opportunity. It's like, I can't believe I'm on stage with all these funny people. And we wrote this thing, and people have to listen to me sing terribly, which is a shame for them. But you know, well, that's why I, I always thought the reason UCB worked so well was Amy and you brought the lights to the group, and Ian and Besser brought the dark, and that's why it worked so well. Did, that's interesting. Did you? You, I've never analyzed the group. That I, way. I, I have all the time in the world. Please, <laughs> yeah, yeah. please. I think certainly each of us bring, brought something to the, you know, I don't want to diminish anybody's uh, contributions to the group, but sure, Matt was certainly most driven mm -hmm. and most focused, and mm -hmm. Ian is very logical and like driven by reason when other people will let their emotions get the best of him. He's really good at like being sensible about mm -hmm. things and looking at options and he's, he's very gifted that way mm -hmm. and and Amy is very funny and like 
sociable and like mm-hmm. can win people over, and, right. but also nice, like legitimately nice. Right. And I guess maybe I'm closer to Amy in that way as well. Right. I'm saying on stage, I thought that's why. Oh, on really stage. Worked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I guess so. All right. Um, <laughs> thanks again, Matt Welsh, for joining Thank you. us. This was a little extra. Bonus, bonus, bonus tech. Yeah. I think the reason you perceive me well at the annoyance is because I always enjoyed seeing you. I think there were people there that I was probably not nice to, or maybe I was, but like someone like you, I found you exceptionally funny and always liked doing bits with you. If anybody's up for doing bits, then there's no reason not to do bits. But you know, can I just say this? Yes. <laughs> you know what but, I mean? Yes. Some people are like, oh, please don't do bits. Like, really? We can't play? Right. Yeah. But I see like right now, like they're... Your style, in, it, it, you were more, was it, I don't want to say goofy, because that's not fair, but you, you had yeah. this very likable presence on stage. And, and even, because I, I, I I've been following your career, because I have nothing, okay. that, that and I analyzed the first three seasons of the UCB. Okay. I can tell you what I think of each season and Please. each episode, but Please. there's like a subtleness now. To, to your work. Oh. Do you, do you yeah. feel that? I think I've gotten better, sure. I do. Uh-huh. I think I've gotten better. I think, for whatever reason, I think I've figured out how to um, portray things perhaps more realistically. And that, some of that is just experience. Some of that's playing with people that are better than you. Like, I always say that, you know. Mm-hmm. Spending time with UCB, I think I copped a lot of good qualities from the other guys. And you also took an acting class, which surprised me when you were out there. Who did you study with and what did you... When I was in Santa Monica, it wasn't good. I I took an acting class that I took with a friend of mine, Andrew Donnelly, and uh, I won't say what it was, but it... I did take a good one in the last two years, which was excellent. And the reason it was excellent is because these two people, Nikki and Richard, and I wish... Richard Green is one of them, and Nikki... Anyways, they're probably affiliated with Stella Adler in some Mm -hmm. way. And what they were great at is they were like directors. Like, you would do a scene... And they would give you notes that a director might give you in a rehearsal process, which I found so valuable because it's like, oh, yeah, let's really pretend like this has to be perfect for opening night. And these are better choices. And this is where you could have played with it more. Or this is where I'm not sure you've made a clear choice there. Like that's to me, that's really useful because it teaches you like there's so many moments that I've ran steamrolled right over in this piece of, you know, theater that I found that really useful for some reason. It wasn't about doing exercises of repetition or any of that which are valuable but mm-hmm. I, I never I never enjoyed how'd that you, stuff. How'd you uh, how'd you blend the improv training with the acting training then after that? I don't know that's always a struggle to yeah. be honest like I find real acting with a tight script very difficult like I like when they give you room to improvise so I'm not a great actor that way I can't like I've never done Shakespeare I don't know that I would be mm-hmm. able to so I, I enjoy situations where there's a great script and you get to add things and Make it a little freer. Do you get to say that when you they offer you they offer you a part or you audition? You go look. I really like this, but I gotta I, you gotta give me room for improvising. I, I think if it's a a great script, like if I was ever given an Aaron Sorkin script, I would never want to improvise. Mm-hmm. Like I would be relieved to just be able to say the words. But I think in comedy, people hire you in the same way that I put, you know, Mike Coleman in the movie or Rob Riggle because it's like that guy's hilarious. The same reason people put Will Ferrell in movies. Like it'd be silly not to use that guy's ability to sort of riff and be in the moment and then see what they really would do. So I think when I get hired on those occasions, I get hired for stuff. I think they know I'm an improviser, so it always inevitably happens. You talk about the work, and he's like, what if I did this? And most directors you know, are very amenable. Even like Todd Phillips is very improv-friendly. He's always like on its feet, sees it, like, yeah, we need something. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? Okay, try this. You know. Do you think there's the truth to the improvisers aren't good with scripts? 
I think improvisers are lazy. Yeah, okay, I do because okay. they they've gotten by on their charm and their wit, <laughs> and sometimes their wit doesn't apply to what the scene is about. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a different muscle. Actors will tell you no, it's not a different muscle. But I think as an improviser, I think improvisers develop lazy habits because they've gotten away with it. Right. And uh, and I think there is training and acting that's valuable that doesn't that is stuff you don't learn in the improv world mm -hmm. probably. And I would always get nuts when I would do a play or work with actors, you know, trained actors, and, and they'd be the most unfunny people off stage, and then they'd hit the stage, and they'd have the script in their hand, and they'd blow you away they were so funny. And I'm like, that's not fair, you know? <laughs> But that's what acting is. Yes. It's not being funny in real life, it's being funny on stage. Do you consider yourself a good actor? Uh, I'm a good actor. Okay. I'll give myself a good actor, sure. Okay. I think you're a good actor. All right, thank yeah, you. I, think you're good I remember actor. one time you got a compliment. Uh, you were doing a Conan O'Brien, uh, and then we've got to end this interview. Sure. Uh, you were on Conan O'Brien, and you, and you were so excited because Tony Randall was, the, was on the show, and he gave you... Uh, can you share that story? Remind me of it, please. He gave you a compliment. You were doing some bit... And I believe it went like this. You, this is, yeah. I, I'd like you to tell the story. No, I'm okay. not. You were doing some bit, and I think Amy was sitting next to... It was when UCB was doing a yeah. lot of Conan Stage bits. Yeah. yeah. And you were out there. You were like somebody in the audience. And Tony Randall said to Amy, well, that guy's a really good actor. And oh. speaking I do remember you. that. Yes. That was a thrill, to have Tony Randall appreciate something I did. You told the story better than I would. Yeah. I forgot it already, but I do remember. What's that the now. best compliment you've ever gotten? Best compliment I've ever gotten. Um, probably someone. Um, I don't know. That's a great question. Something in the vein of, uh, you're, you're, you play things very real, which I. When somebody tells me that, I like that. So. If, what What do you want to do next in the next? Um, I mean, you've done so much, Matt. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to direct another movie. I th I'm writing a movie. I worked at Northwestern Hospital when I came out of college uh, here in Chicago. I was mm -hmm. like a counselor on a psych ward. Oh, I, okay. So for the three years when I was starting Improv Olympic and Annoyance, I think it overlapped there, I was working during the day on this adolescent psych ward with disturbed adolescents, and it was really intense, and I thought I was going to be a psychologist. So I find that period of life after college. So you go to college, and you study accounting, and you study business, and then you get this job in that thing you studied, and you spend a year or two and you realize, there's no way I want to fucking do this. And it's about that. It's about the early 20s when people get out of school and they chase that thing and then they have to sort of like, whoa, this isn't what I wanted to do. How, how much of that, the psychologist, do you bring to when you direct? Because I don't think any of it, honestly. Are you serious? Not, not consciously, no. Uh -huh. Not at all. I, everything I learned that applies to directing is from practical, you know, theater, improv, Being on the rehearsal, other side, being an actor. Being an actor, but uh -huh. the process of, like, creating... Improv especially, I think improv is great for getting authentic reaction and authentic interaction like nothing else. Like, good actors can recreate it, but you can also be in an improv scene and you say something funny to me or something bizarre, you're going to see a bizarre reaction on my face. That uh -huh. is really, really cool to see. But I think the practical... I think because film, you're recording it, if you can just create for one moment, it doesn't have to live and you don't have to recreate it, but if you can create this one moment where something really funny or something really awkward or something really awesome happens, you have it. That's what's great about improv is like you can get it and you don't have to recreate it and mm -hmm. because we're filming it, we can move on. That's what's great about improv is you can kind of figure out this way to create this fire, this, this spark between characters and there's funny and there's interesting and, and maybe dramatic at moments 
and that's it. And it, they may never be able to recreate it, but because you're filming, you got it. That's what's great about making an improv movie. And then how much of it is, I heard, like in the editing process, you had like eight hours? Of we, I mean, we were self-indulgent. Right. We, it was never going to come out as an eight-hour movie. But yeah, because there was a lot of off-story riffs and there uh -huh. was a lot of prolonged riffing on one subject, we had somewhere between a six and an eight-hour cut. But it was never going to be that way. But we, it was almost like the editor said, because he was a documentary guy, like, here's if we put every joke in the movie. Uh -huh. And it was also good to just see it and go just as a bank of like, okay, I have that. We're not going to use it. But later in the edit process, like, can we go back to that scene we cut? You know what I mean? Were you obsessed about it? Like in the editing process, would you go home and bang and go, okay, if I put this scene here, I take this bit. Was there? A I, I wasn't obsessed once I went home. But when the, in the editing room, I was obsessed, obsessed. And occasionally I would just be at home and, and an epiphany would hit me like, I got it. I got to fix. But I was fortunate enough to work with a excellent director, Alexis Hannawalt, and, uh, and a great documentary crew headed by a girl named uh, Hillary Spira. So we got to, man, yeah. I want to thank you again. This is the second wrap-up. This is the second wrap-up. And this is probably the real wrap-up. You don't know. Wrap. You yeah. don't know. It man. could keep going, Jim. Um, yeah, we could keep going. What's the longest interview you've done? Um, the longest, Ben, um, how long have we... This is, this is it? This is it, yeah. Wow. All right, let's cut. All right, Less thanks, man. Thank you. We're shaking hands. Yes. I want to thank Matt Walsh for uh, a, a great interview and uh, giving us some extra time. I really appreciate it. And it was really nice to catch up with him. I hadn't talked to him for a while. So uh, thank you, Matt. Look for High Road. It's available on Netflix and VOD. And also look for Veep uh, on HBO. If you want to hear more from Matt, I check out his uh, Bear Down podcast, which is BearDownPodcast.com. It's a place for all things football, all things Chicago, and all things interesting. Improv Nerd is produced by the talented Ben Caprero. We recorded at the Second City in Chicago. And uh, if you want more information about Improv Nerd, please, please, please go to our Facebook page and like us. It's great for my self-esteem. And if you're interested in classes and want to know more about Jimmy Corain, just go to jimmycorain.com. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Improv And this part was recorded in the improv uh, three, two, one. And this part was recorded in the improv nerd studio, which doubles as a 2002 Honda Accord. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein. And I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 